everyone, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. I am glad to be reaching out to you once again. It feels like a long time since the last podcast. I guess it kind of was a long time since the last podcast. It was four weeks ago. Uh, as you know, about seven or eight weeks ago, we changed to a new bi-weekly format. And then two weeks ago, I was set to send you out the podcast that I'm going to be sending out to you tonight. Um, but a lot of things have been going on, and I'm not going to give you a whole lot of excuses about teaching summer classes and moving and, and all that sort of thing. But I will say, as you probably saw on the Facebook page for the podcast, one of my twin sons uh, was actually bitten by a snake, uh, and we had to take him to the emergency room during the time in which I would normally be researching and recording the podcast. So I figure that you gracious listeners would uh, cut me a little bit of slack given the fact that my son was bitten by a venomous snake. Now, uh, I wanted to clear up, clear up a couple quick things about it because I realized uh, from the emails and the concern that people had expressed to, uh, to me that I had misrepresented a couple of things. First of all, uh, yeah, he did get bitten by a snake, and yeah, that snake was in our house, but in our house we have a mud room, a really large transition room between the uh, backyard and the garage and the inside of the house, the kitchen. Um, and, uh, and that's where the snake was lurking uh, when he reached out to touch it and it bit him. Um, the snake was not like hanging out in our living room and we were all watching TV and it just kind of came in there and attacked us. Um, I realized that some of the things that I had written on Facebook and some of the, the comments that people had made seemed to suggest that, that, that we had fallen victim to an aggressive serpent and that's not exactly the way that it happened. So, um, it happened in, in the mud room, in the transition room, um, where we often leave the doors open to the outside. So it's really not a big mystery how it is or why it is that a snake came into our house. Um, my son was fascinated by it, and of course he reached out to touch it, uh, and that's when it bit him on the finger. Secondly, um, I do believe, even though we're not entirely certain because we didn't catch the snake and it's probably still wandering around our house right now, um, we do believe it was probably a venomous snake, but it gave him, at worst, a dry bite. Um, so no venom was injected. Um, as you probably know, most of the time, even when venomous snakes strike, they don't envenomate. Um, it's very metabolically expensive. It's very costly for them to envenomate with every single bite. Uh, and so for the most part, they don't do it every single time they bite. And happily, this time around, the snake did not. Um, and so even though he had two little tiny fang, mark, fang marks on his uh, little bitty tiny index finger, uh, he was fine. So... Uh, again, thanks for cutting me that slack. I appreciate your uh, your not giving me too hard of a time, and I appreciate your uh, catching up with me here uh, four weeks after the last one that, that, that I brought to you. Um, thanks again also for going online, for going on the Facebook page, for giving us reviews and all that sort of thing. Um, you noticed as we had our intro here that that was a different intro music than the one that we had last time. And so if you like this intro music, uh, by all means, tell me if you like it rather than we had the one last time. I'm going to keep the same outro music from last time. Uh, folks seemed to like that, and I kind of liked it too. I thought it was fun. So I think I'm going to end up uh, long term here going with different intro music and outro music. So uh, I was having a conversation with a couple of people at my house about a week ago, um, and we were talking about how... When you learn a new word, you feel like you see that word or you hear that word everywhere. Um, like when you're studying for the SAT and you learn words like quixotic and soporific and everybody's favorite, versimilitude, um, suddenly you feel as if 
writers are constantly using those words or, or you feel as if they're in movie scripts and you never really knew that they were there before. Um, of course, they were already there, always there. Um, you just never noticed them because you didn't really know what the word meant and so it never really made any sort of association inside of your head. Um, that's kind of the way I feel about groups um, and group training. Uh, about six or eight weeks ago, there was a podcast that I put together and broadcast about how uh, groups are kind of everywhere, that there's a lot of talk about groups and the benefit of group training right now. Um, and I feel like even since that time, even since I, I put out that podcast, I've seen multiple articles and, and all sorts of other podcasts talking about the importance and the efficacy uh, of training with a group. Um, and and I went back and listened to the group training podcast that I did, episode 12 or 13 or whatever it was, um, and and I noticed that, that there was a little bit of stuff there at the end that was kind of unclear. Now, my career, my training is in teaching, and podcasting, I've learned, is not like teaching. If I'm trying to explain something to a group of people, be it the iceberg metaphor of culture or what dog whistle racism is or something like that, so that the sort of things I teach in my college class, I can tell when people don't understand. Um, and they might give me sort of backwards look or, best of all, they might actually raise their hand and ask me to explain it in a different way, which I always appreciate. Um, Podcasting is not like teaching. If I say something that's unclear, you don't get or I don't get that immediate feedback, um, that, that look of confusion that tells me that I've explained something poorly. It's not until I listen to the podcast uh, two, three days later, sometimes a couple of weeks later, uh, that I actually understand that maybe I said something that wasn't quite right. And when I was went, going back and listening to the piece on groups, to the podcast on groups, I realized that that last little bit um, about highly productive groups, um, where I was trying to explain that some groups are just collections of people, but other groups are so-called high-quality groups, um, I realized that 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 I, I didn't really explain that well. And here's what I was trying to say. First of all, what I was trying to say is kind of what I just said. Some groups are simply collections of people, but other groups, so-called high-quality groups, you end up finding that people are more punctual, they have better attendance, and they even work harder in those high-quality groups. And so the question then becomes, what's the difference between those super productive groups and the groups that are just collections of people? And in essence, there are three big things. The first thing is that in those high-quality groups, there's an existence of group norms, and the people who are parts of the group recognize and understand and appreciate and buy into those group norms. Um, the second thing is that um, there's a sense among the people in the group that they are part of the group. Um, they don't just see themselves as a loose collection of people, but rather they know the people inside the group. They, they, they identify themselves as part of the group, um, and they see themselves as an important component inside an overall symbiotic collection of people. Um, and, and so that, that's important as well. The third thing is the presence of what they call healthy competition. Now, this was the part that I was telling you about that the author Charles Duhigg, who wrote Smarter, Faster, Better, uh, described a little bit more in his book uh, that was also mentioned in the Outside Online article that I mentioned as well that day. Uh, but he said this is a sort of competition that, quote, doesn't spill over into defensiveness or become self or mutually destructive, unquote. Um, and in speaking about that serious elite squad, the one that's uh, coached by Siri Lindley, Rafael Gonclaves, the world-class triathlete, said, quote, Everyone is training hard and pursuing their own individual excellence, even competing at times. But rather than try to beat each other down, everyone is working to raise each other up, unquote. 
And so those three things, the existence of group norms, the sense of people in the group that they're part of the group, and the existence, the presence of healthy competition, those are really the three things that researchers have identified that separate just a random collection of people from one of these high-quality groups that ultimately raises all boats. Um, I did want to clear that up, as I said. So moving on to this week's topic, though. I got an email this week from an athlete who was asking about coaching services and coaching programming and, and asking me whether I'd be interested in taking her on as a client and, and what I could offer her and whether I could help her reach some of her goals. Now, it was it was a good email. Um, she said, this is where I am. This is what I've done. Um, and and these are my goals. And she has a goal to, to compete in the Boulder 70.3 a year from now, uh, which is great. It's 50 weeks away. And she says, I know it's a hard race and I know that I need to train for it and be prepared for it. And I want to get and start getting ready for it now. And we ended up trading a few emails back and forth, and at one point she said, by the way, I'm very, very, very slow. Three varies she used there. Very, 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 very slow. Very, very slow. Three varies. Very, very, very slow. There it is. Um, and, and in reading it, it really stood out to me because here was an athlete who wanted to get on a training plan, was training for an ambitious goal, wanted to be systematic um, and, and programmatic in her approach to this goal so she could have the best performance that she could possibly have. And then she was self-deprecating enough or such that she said, I'm very, very, very slow. And those things to me seem to be a little bit disconnected and it kind of bothered me. Um, and, and I started thinking a lot about it and reflecting a lot more on it. And, and I realized what really bothers me is this division between so-called fast and slow. Um, and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that this division between fast and slow is, is really bogus. And it's ultimately, I think, kind of destructive. And there's, there's three big reasons why I don't really buy into this so-called fast and slow dichotomy. The first one is kind of an obvious reason. And it's because everybody is faster or slower than somebody else. Um, in the United States last year, there were 212.6 million people taking part in some sort of physical activity. Um, that's an incredible number of people. And yes, indeed, there is one person out there who is faster than all of them, sure, than all 212.6 million people in our country. And sure, I guess, theoretically speaking, even though it would be completely impossible to identify who this person was, there's somebody out there who's slower than all 212.6 million of those people. But I can guarantee you it was not the person that sent me this email. Um, everybody is out there is faster or slower than somebody else. Now, quick side note, by the way, on that number, 212.6 million people taking part, that is actually a surveyed number. Um, and it's an overwhelming and, and kind of impressive figure to think about 212.6 million people in the United States who are currently taking part in some sort of physical activity. However, recall also that the current population of the United States is somewhere between 315 and 320 million people. So even though there are 212.6 million people out there taking part in some sort of physical activity, that means there's 100 million people out there in our country alone that are not doing any sort of physical activity. Um, and that's a pretty striking number as well. 61.5% um, of the U.S. population age 6 and older takes part in what are called fitness sports. That's a great number. Um, but that leaves about 40% of the population who is either taking part in something else or not doing any sort of activity whatsoever. And that's, that's of course, tens of millions of people. But anyway, back to the idea of not everybody being fast or, or slow or, or, or not a, no one being the fastest or the slowest. Um, 
I, I want to consider the Peachtree Road Race and the qualifying times for it. Uh, the Peachtree Road Race is the largest 10K in the United States. It happens every July 4th here. It's the marquee event of the Atlanta Track Club uh, here in Atlanta. And it's, it's a great race. It's been going on for uh, coming up on 50 years now. Um, uh, 65,000 people, uh, 19 waves of people are, are separated out based upon their qualifying times. In order to be at the front of the race... In order to get a seated number, in order to really be in front of the 65,000 people enough that you would be able to run the race and actually race it rather than just sort of trudge through it and be part of this gigantic uh, parade that goes on for three hours in Atlanta on July 4th, in order to be in the front, you have to run 39.10 for 10K. And you have to prove that you have run 39.10 at some place throughout the course of, of the prior year. Um, and that's a pretty solid time, 39 minutes and 10, 10 seconds for, for a 6.2-mile race. Um, it's a solid enough time, of course, that, like I said, that's how you get in front of the 65,000 people. And so you would think that that's this super incredible time because it puts you at the very, very front of the largest 10K on the planet, which, by the way, also happens to be uh, the U.S. championship for the Road 10K, uh, for the United States championship. Um, but that being said, so somebody who ran 39... 10 and thought they were really awesome and, and got the seated number and was in front of the 65,000 people, they would think that they were super duper fast. And they'd be right. They are fast. Um, but that person, if they ran 39.10 on race day in July 4th of 2015, they would have finished 359th place. Um, they would have been about 10 minutes behind the winner. And to be clear, that's about two miles behind the winner of the race. And so you tell me, is that person fast because they're in front of the 65,000 people? Or is that person slow because they finished two miles behind the winner of the race in a 6.2-mile race? Um, the point being is that the idea of being fast or slow is entirely relative. By, by one set of standards, that 39.10 runner would certainly be considered fast. But by another set of standards, they would be considered not all that fast. Um, secondly... Um, in looking at all of these things and um, doing a bunch of research and trying to, to, to wrap my head around the idea of fast and slow and, and what a better way of going about distinguishing between people like the person who wrote to me and people who perhaps are not like the person who wrote to me, I happened across um, a, a term called the serious leisure perspective. It's by a, a researcher named Robert Stebbins. Uh, and the serious leisure perspective, it defines what it calls serious leisure. Um, and serious leisure is, quote, the systematic pursuit of an amateur, hobbyist, or volunteer core activity that is highly substantial, interesting, and fulfilling, and where, in the typical case, participants find a career in acquiring and expressing a combination of its special skills, knowledge, and experience. Um, pursuing a serious leisure activity eventually engenders deep self-fulfillment. Leisure is serious and therefore fundamentally different from what some might call casual leisure. Now, unquote. It talked about uh, there are three basic ideas, three places, and it was mentioned there in the first part of the definition. There's amateur, hobbyist, and volunteer. And those are sort of the three places where you can have uh, sort of zones or domains of, of the serious leisure pursuits. Um, and then inside amateur, of course, there were three areas in there, three subdivisions there. One was art, one was entertainment, and one, of course, was sport. Um, and so somebody who is a serious leisure 
pursuant, a serious leisure amateur in the subdivision of sports, um, are separate from so-called casual leisurers um, or casual amateurs or people who are casual about their leisure in terms of amateur sports. Um, and it, it has six criteria that they use to, to distinguish so-called serious leisure people from casual leisure people. Number one, the need to persevere at the activity. Number two, the availability of a leisure career, i.e., can you actually do it? Um, which, of course, when it comes to running and triathlon and swimming, uh, you can, in fact, do that. Swimming, not so much, I don't suppose, but running, cycling, and triathlon, certainly that. Uh, three, the need to put in an effort to gain skill and knowledge. Four, the realization of various special benefits. Five, unique ethos and social world. Back to that groups thing. Um, And six, an attractive personal and social identity. Um, Several personal and social rewards, e.g. self-fulfillment, contribution to the group or community, help further explain a person's interest in serious leisure, which is at bottom his or her leisure experience. Um, And I submit that anybody looking for a coach meets all six of those criteria. Um, I think serious and casual is a far better distinction than fast and slow. Um, I think the mindset um, is what distinguishes the runners from the joggers, from the fast people, from the slow people. Not whether you can run under seven minutes a mile or five minutes a mile or four minutes a mile for that matter. The idea of serious leisure, by the way, kind of reminds me of the idea of harmonious passion that we talked about in the very first and second episodes of this podcast. Um, Third, the reason why fast and slow doesn't really work for me, and the reason why I think it's kind of a bogus thing is because research shows that the folks who are serious and the folks who are casual really aren't all that much different from one another. Um, And that's ultimately what I kind of want to get to with this podcast here in just a couple minutes. But I I looked at this 1997 study of what they call competitors, non-competitors, and non-exercisers. And this was a large study of about 250 people, um, all of whom were seniors. Uh, They they met them at the Senior Olympics. Um, And and so these were people who, who, some of whom were competitors, some of whom were non-competitors, and then some of whom were classified as as non-exercisers. And anyway, they, they, they... evaluated and interviewed the people um, based on their motivations and their personality and all that sort of thing. And they showed that competitors and non-competitors weren't really that different from one another in terms of their motivation and their personality. Now, they were different from so-called non-exercisers. But essentially, once you cross that activity threshold, once you start doing something, once you get on your bike or once you start hitting the road to run, you've crossed a threshold where whether you're fast or slow, competitor, non-competitor, serious, casual, recreational, competitive, whatever you want to say, you've crossed a threshold there that puts you into a different category um, that that uh, has the same general motivations um, and personality traits regardless of how fast or slow you happen to be going. All of them, be they competitors and non-competitors, saw fitness and weight maintenance as important considerations. Uh, none of them were really motivated by their doctors hounding them to get fit um, and, and other things. Um, now, I should also say there were several articles in kind of looking for this. When you, when you t- Google competitive versus non-competitive sports research, uh, you find – 
a lot of real garbage articles, um, and not scholarly articles, but just um, like blog posts and things like that about people complaining that like kids these days don't want to compete, and about how how it's all about finisher medals, and that we're just giving trophies to everybody, and all this other things like that. Um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff about the effects of competition on kids at various points in their development, and about gender structures and all that sort of thing. Um, but what I felt like I was awash in was just a lot of folks from my generation, um, about my age and older, complaining about kids these days. And, and it was very frustrating to me because um, I think that one generation complaining about the next generation has been going on since the beginning of time. Um, every generation thinks that they are better than the generation that came after them. Um, my parents' generation thought that my generation was a whole bunch of slackers and that we lacked morals and that ultimately we were going to lead to the, to the, the, the decay of our society and the, the, the ultimate decline of the United States. And then in turn, my generation now thinks that about kids today. And so, I mean, it's just kind of part of this, this ongoing, ever-going cycle that's been going on, like I said, since the advent of civilization. Um, but I also found that, thought it was kind of ironic because – because in doing all this stuff, not only was I finding all these kind of complaining article about kids these days, but then I also found things like a 1995 study that showed that so-called competitive athletes are actually more extrinsically motivated than re- recreational athletes. Uh, in other words, it's the hardcore people that are looking for the finisher medals, not the middle of the pack and the back of the pack people. Uh, the middle of the pack and the back of the pack people, even though they might be taking pictures with their finisher medals and might be showing them off, um, they're actually more intrinsically motivated motivated. They're, they're the ones that are actually looking for the enrichment that can come from sports more than the people at the front of the pack. But yet it's the people at the front of the pack com- that complain that we're giving medals out to everybody and all that sort of thing. Um, incidentally, I also found several articles that said that youth participation um, in sports is waning from where it was a decade ago. Um, there's a lot of club teams that have grown up and a lot of traveling teams and that sort of thing uh, that, have, that have taken off. And recreational teams have become sort of training sites and prep centers for these club teams, these traveling teams. Um, and you end up having this sort of massive polarization that's going on inside of youth sports now, such that you either have a kid who is really, really super duper hardcore into one sport, and there's issues with that around you know over-specialization and stress and burnout and all that sort of thing. Uh, but then you also have 70% of kids who take part in sports from age 6 forward, they end up quitting by the times they're age 13. Um, and the blame for this is actually put uh, often on parents. Uh, there was an article in the Washington Post I found that said, quote, In the past two decades, sports has become an investment to many parents, one that they believe could lead to a college scholarship, even though the odds are bleak. Parents now start their kids in sports as toddlers, jockey to get them on elite travel teams, and spend small fortunes on private coaching, expensive equipment, swag, and travel tournaments. Youth sports is is the new keeping up with the Joneses, unquote. Um, And so that was, again, that's just kind of a side note that that, uh, as I was researching things that were related to these topics, uh, I just happened upon that as well. Um, So... It's for these three primary reasons. Uh, number one, that everybody is faster or slower than somebody. Uh, number two, this, this idea around serious leisure versus casual leisure, this idea that, that there are mindsets that, that actually uh, separate the so-called fast people or the competitive people from the slow people, uh, the, the runners from the joggers. 
Uh, and third, um, the idea that the, the people who are serious and the people who are casual really aren't all that much different from one another after all. It's for these reasons that I really don't like the idea of fast and slow. Um, and then I'm seeking out a better alternative. And so I encourage you to help me think about ways to go about saying, you know, athlete versus non-athlete um, or, or something else like that. Um, even if I end up finding a way, though, I don't know that it would be all that helpful um, because as I continue to reflect on this idea of fast versus slow, I kept coming back to the fact that the fundamental things that lead to the enjoyment of endurance sports, no matter how you define enjoyment, no matter what it is that you're looking for, whether you're looking to win the race or finish the race, um, the fundamental things that will lead to your enjoyment of the race are the same, uh, regardless of whether you're serious or casual, recreational or competitive, fast or slow, um, however it is that you, you want to say it. Um, and so quickly here, I, I did want to kind of go through and talk about those um, over the course of the next couple of minutes. Uh, first of all, um, I think that, that it's important to recover. Um, good athletes, be they fast athletes or slow athletes, um, take days off when it's necessary to take those days off. They take their easy days when it's necessary to take those easy days. Now, I've already done a podcast on fatigue, and I don't need to talk about that any, a whole lot more. But any article you read from any athlete who's been in the sport for a while – um, if you look at people who are 39, 40 years old, people like Jen, Jens Voigt, who, who did the Tour de France at age 41 and ultimately retired as a pro cyclist from the very highest levels, the world tour level, when he was 42 years old. Uh, Meb Kofleski, um, who everybody knows Meb now after he won the, uh, the Boston Marathon in 2014. Um, uh, Dina Castor, um, who recently set the Masters women's record uh, for the, the, the marathon, uh, but also got a silver medal in the 2004 Olympic marathon, the same marathon where Meb Kofleski also got a, a silver medal. Um, all of them talk about the one big thing that, that has been important and has contributed to their longevity in the sport is recovering and taking time to allow their bodies to heal and to come back stronger. Um, that, that's one thing that they say that when they were earlier in their career, they didn't really appreciate, but as they got older, they began to discover and, and appreciate the importance of recovery. Uh, number two, I think that regardless of how you categorize yourself as an athlete, fast or slow, recreational, competitive, whatever, any of those bogus self-concepts that I'm talking about, um, I think that, that, that regardless of how you see yourself, it's important that you prioritize other things. Um, I find that the athletes that I coach that are well-balanced and ultimately successful that find enjoyment inside of sports, um, they, they have a good balance in their life. Uh, they have fun, and ultimately over time they're able to stay more mentally fresh and, and, and away from burnout. Um, now, there are times, of course, where things are kind of forced out of balance. If you have a big goal and it's right around the corner, you can expect your life to be a little bit about, out of balance in the, in the last uh, six weeks or so leading up to that goal. Um, but generally speaking, the people I find that, that, that feel most enriched by the endurance sporting endeavor are people that, that are also um, – prioritizing other things in their life and are ensuring um, that they're not entirely unbalanced. Now, quick side note on this. One of the things I've talked about on several occasions throughout the course of this podcast are my own injuries and my own inability to train right now. And one of the things I'm finding in doing this is how much the balance of my life was predicated on my participation in sports. Um, that my life feels imbalanced when I'm not able to take part in sports. Um, and in reflecting on that and thinking about the overall significance of my life, it does make me wonder uh, whether I do indeed have a healthy balance in my life um, when I am healthy and when I'm able to, to take part in sports. 
Um, third, um, a focus on overall health. I think that regardless of how you classify yourself, again, fast, slow, competitive, non-competitive, whatever, um, I think that the people who are most successful focus on their overall health rather than focus just on going fast and just on speed and just on no pain, no gain and all, all that sort of thing. Now, I found an article recently that some of you might have seen about three weeks ago. Um, it was on Outside Online, Outside Magazine Online. And it was about Ryan Hall, the uh, professional runner um, and, uh, and record holder here from the United States who uh, retired about six months ago. Um, over the course of the past six months, he has applied the same zeal um, and same discipline he once had for distance running to, of all things, weightlifting. Um, and he's gained 40 pounds. Um, and he's kind of built now. Um, and so he's been working out, lifting weights really, really, really heavily every single day over the course of the past six months. Um, and he's gone from, he's two inches shorter than I am, and he's gone from weighing 135 pounds to actually weighing more than what I weigh right now, uh, even as I'm out of shape. And so he's, he's kind of big. He, he tweeted a selfie of himself standing in the gym and flexing, and it doesn't even look like the same person. It looks like somebody photoshopped his face onto somebody else's body. Um, but the, the, the name of the article in Outside Online was, Yes, Professional Runners Are Weak. Um, and it quoted Ryan Hall as saying, To be an elite marathoner with a body that's light and lean, while you're running, you feel amazing. You're fluid and economical, floating along without having to carry a lot of muscle mass. But the rest of the day, to be honest, it's not a lot of fun, unquote. Um, the author then goes on to say, Hall told me that even during his best years as a competitive athlete, he was healthy only in a narrowly defined way. As he put it, he was good at one thing, running. Everything else was rather laborious. Hall said that he could be stirring pots of chili while making dinner and feel soreness in his shoulder the next day. Not exactly the robust image that the running industry wants to promote. Rather than condemnation of running in general, however, Hall's example should serve as a reminder that participating in a sport for one's well-being and competing at the highest level are not the same thing. That might sound obvious, but it's easy to overlook with endurance sports like running and cycling, which in our culture have become ubiquitous staples of healthy living. On some level, we assume that those who perform these activities better than anyone else must be at the pinnacle of health, but that's a tenuous assumption at best, unquote. I say it's not even a tenuous assumption. I say it's a poor assumption. Um, uh, the idea here, uh, and of course the reason why I'm mentioning it, is because because Ryan Hall by everyone's standard, of course, would be competitive, fast. Um, but in reflecting back on his career, uh, which ended prematurely and probably not the way that he wanted it to, um, he realizes that overall he was not very healthy. And I think the people who um, are most successful, no matter how they classify themselves, uh, the people who derive the most enjoyment from the sports are ones who focus on their overall health, not just their narrow sense of health, um, in terms of the, the sport that they're doing. Um, number four, um, in my opinion, I think people who are healthiest and get the most out of sport connect with other people. That's what the last podcast was all about, so I'm not going to go into it anymore, but, but groups matter, and I think that regardless of how fast you're going, how slow you're going, um, that, that you will ultimately better, be better if you find yourself a group with whom you can train. Um, there's this uh, adage that says something to the effect of if you want to go far, go with other people, but if you want to go fast, go alone. Um, and I disagree with that. Um, I think regardless of whether you want to go for or fa- far, far or fast, uh, you should go with other people. Um, you're always going to go farther and faster um, when you're with other folks, um, assuming, of course, that it's one of those healthy communities that I talked about at the outset. Um, number five, you go easy on your easy days. 
Um, I think a lot of people, particularly elite amateurs, they tend to want to go hard all the time. A lot of folks who see themselves as competitive are fast, um, or they see themselves as not one of those recreational people, but but in fact they're 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 one of the the runners. They're one of the fast people. They're 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 one of the top age groupers. Uh, they're a competitor. Those folks tend to go too hard all the time. Um, and I talked about that a little bit in the fatigue piece, but it's a real issue with elite amateurs that they always want to push it. They have this no gain, no pain, no gain. Um, uh, approach, um, and they don't allow themselves to recover. So I guess this is kind of a, a building off of what I said. The very first thing I said, they allow themselves to recover. Um, there's some interesting conversation going on right now on the Facebook page of my triathlon club, the Atlanta Triathlon Club, um, about the 80-20 idea. Uh, Matt Fitzgerald, um, who's an author that I would love to be, frankly, um, he's written a lot of very interesting books, but he wrote one called 80-20 a couple of years ago that essentially says that 80% of your work as an endurance athlete needs to be easy, zone one, zone two type stuff, and only 20% of it needs to be hard. Um, and I think that that's something that, that really good athletes, generally speaking, do. Um, I think people who come from a running background find this to be an easier thing. Um, I think people who come from a gym background, like they lifted weights uh, prior to getting into endurance sports, or people who even come from a swimming background, um, have a harder time with this. Um, uh, and like I said, people who are, are elite amateurs, who feel like they need to go hard all the time, who are constantly wanting to prove themselves to themselves or to other people or to their Strava followers, who happen, happens to be, um, they're always wanting to push um, rather than taking that 80% easy time. Um, so I think the best athletes, regardless of, of where they fall or what their self-concept is, they go easy on their easy days. Um, six, they go. They do include some hard training, uh, and they go hard on their hard days. Um, now, that's not contrary to what I was just saying. You go easy on your easy days. You go hard on your hard days. But I think that there are some people who classify themselves a particular way that say, oh, well, I'm not really all that fast. I'm not competitive, so I don't ever really need to run hard. I don't really ever need to bike fast. Um, and that's not true. Um, hard training not only develops systems that are utilized during races, but it also makes you a more efficient athlete. Um, it means that you can hold your form later in a race as you start getting tired if you mimic those conditions when you're in training. And if you can do that, if you can be more efficient later in a race or later in a long training session, that ultimately is going to be safer. It's going to be healthier. If you can hold your form together, you're less likely to get injured. And so um, regardless of, of where you consider yourself to fall on the continuum, fast, slow, competitive, recreational, whatever, um, you should be doing some amount of hard training. Now, along these same lines, there was some research that was done over the course of the past few years on what's called polarized training. Um, and you might be familiar with this, but um, there was one fairly uh, definitive study that looked at polarized training, and they took 48 pretty serious athletes, um, all folks who were already had uh, a fairly high level of achievement, um, and they trained them for nine weeks in four different groups. They put one group in a high-volume, low-intensity workout series, another one in a low-volume, high-intensity. Uh, they had a third one in constant, moderate intensity. Um, and the fourth one was a mix of very hard and very easy, or what they call polarized training. Um, at the end of that nine weeks, they, they took a whole bunch of physical markers again. And the group of subjects who showed the greatest physiological and performance benefits by far were in the polarized group. Um, the VO2 max increased on average 11.7%. Their time to exhaustion on a ramp test increased 17.4%. Uh, their peak velocity or peak power improved 5.1%. 
Um, and even their velocity and their power at their anaerobic threshold improved 8.1%, even though they never trained at anaerobic threshold. They were either way above it or way below it. Um, the people who did low-volume, high-intensity had the second amount, uh, second highest amount of improvement, um, and the people who did constant, moderate intensity uh, showed very little improvement. Um, and I think I might have mentioned one time on this podcast before, they actually had higher rates of injury than anybody else, injury and illness than anybody else did uh, in the study. And so this idea that, that um, you should never run fast, well, certainly you should run fast, but you should also take your easy days easy. Um, Last, finally, the one other big thing that I've found that regardless of how you classify yourself helps you out is when you prioritize your races, when you periodize. In a USATF training that I was doing um, several months ago, a year or so ago, um, one of the the world-class coaches who had coached multiple national champions and Olympians said that his opinion, in his opinion, um, you could really only have one good race a year. Um, Now, the, the... life of a professional athlete or even the life of a recreational athlete means that you probably need to try and have more than one good race a year. But but I think that the, the, the principle there is sound. You should prioritize your races and say, this is the one big important race that I'm pointing towards and that I'm trying to do. Um, I have found that physically that works the best, but also I think mentally that works the best and financially that works the best. If you say, I'm going to put my eggs mostly in this one single basket, ultimately it turns about out better for you. It's even better for your family. Um, training for a big race, focusing on a big race, it can be fairly exhausting for your family um, and for your coworkers who have to pick up the slack for you when you're leaving early or when you're tired from a workout or whatever it happens to be. Um, it's better for those people if you're focusing on one big race and you're getting everybody on board with you to do well in that one big race rather than constantly saying, oh, well, yeah, I'm doing this race and I'm doing this race. Oh, now I'm going to do this race. And, and you have a bunch of like medium level priority races. Prioritizing one to two really good races a year uh, I have found that regardless of how you classify yourself, fast, slow, recreational, competitive, non-competitive, whatever, um, that's the people who end up getting the most enjoyment from the sport. So fast or slow, recreational, competitive, etc., 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 those are the things that I feel that, that everyone needs to be doing um, regardless of how you see yourself. Um, and while you're at it, go ahead and just let go of those labels about fast and slow and competitive and non-competitive and all that sort of thing. Um, like I said, I think they're bogus labels, um, and they ultimately are not really of any good use. Um, before we wrap up, I did want to give a quick shout-out to my friend, Eric Newsom. Um, those of you who follow uh, ultra endurance sports, and I don't just mean Ironmans or even double Ironmans, I mean like the biggest ultra endurance sports of all, um, are certainly familiar with Eric Newsom. If you're not familiar with him specifically, you're certainly familiar with the Race Across America. Uh, the Race Across America, to give you a quick primer here, is a bike race that starts in an Oceanside, California, and finishes in Annapolis, Maryland. And a couple of things about it. Number one, yes, it's a race. Um, it's not a ride across America. It's not sort of this leisurely thing where you stop off at hotels and, and you sleep eight hours a night as you're going along. No, it's a race. Um, and you have to finish in under 12 days or else you're not allowed to be a finisher. And in order to finish in under 12 days, you have to pretty much be constantly going. Um, you can't take a whole lot of breaks and a whole lot of sleep throughout. It's 3,000 miles of constant racing. Um, Along the same lines, it's it's kind of works the same way that your local 5K works, that they fire the gun and they give you a prescribed course 
and your finishing time is whatever your time is when you cross the finishing line. Now, whether you walked or stopped or talked to your friends along the way or got lost or whatever it happens to be, when you cross that finish line, that's what your finishing time is going to be. It's the same thing, except that rather than 5K, it's 5,000 kilometers um, all the way across the United States. They start the clock. You follow the prescribed path, which is literally turn by turn all the way across the United States. And when you finish, that is your finishing time. And, of course, the finishing times are... Uh, measured in days. Um, the fastest eight-person team ever to get across went in under five days. The fastest individual ever to get across went in just under eight days. Um, uh, uh, the limit is 12 days. Um, so Eric um, uh, did it last year, uh, attempted Race Across America last year. About 50% of people who attempt it as soloists don't finish. Um, because it's such a grueling and difficult race. Uh, you go through the desert, you go over the Rocky Mountains, you go over the Appalachian Mountains, um, and you have to cover uh, better than 400 miles a day uh, for 12 days. You have to cover about 450 miles a day, um, which requires near constant time on the bicycle and a severe amount of sleep deprivation. He attempted it last year and didn't finish. He continued to train for another year. This year he got all the way to 170 miles from the finish line. He was in Maryland um, and and he had to drop out. Um, he had gotten to such an exhausted place uh, that, that his mind had almost completely gone from what I've heard. Um, and he was getting off the bike, and, and when they actually put him in the car and they pulled him out of the race, he actually thought he was in Arizona um, rather than being in Maryland. Um, he was just completely, um, completely exhausted, beyond exhausted. It's not even the word. I don't even know the word for it. Um, and it's striking to me because on the one hand, I think it would be very easy to say, wow, he was only 170 miles away. He'd already gone... 2,800 miles, you know, too bad he couldn't finish up. Oh, if he just could have finished it up. To me, the fact that he got to 170 miles to go and then had to drop out shows how bad it was. Um, That he got that close and yet still his crew had to make the decision to pull him out of the race because it was unsafe for him to continue. Even though he he was within smelling distance of the finish shows you just how completely wrung out he must have been um and it's 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 a heroic effort it's an amazing race it's a crushing race um i'm 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 gutted for him that 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 he wasn't able to finish um i'm i'm hoping that that when he recovers over the course of the next couple of months perhaps we can get him on the show and talk to him a little bit about it because um the dedication he has shown in his training to say nothing of the race itself over the course of the past week and a half, um, but but the amount of time and dedication that was required from him um, and from his family and from everyone around him um, has been incredible, um, and and it's worth honoring and worth appreciating. And so, I said I wanted to give him a shout out. That doesn't seem like nearly enough. Um, I want to give him as much praise as I possibly can because uh, Eric, even though he didn't quite make it to the finish line, um, has done something that is literally beyond comprehension for most of us, even those of us who are inside the endurance world. So congratulations, Eric. Uh, You're our hero, man.
And once again, that does it for this episode of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast. Uh, don't forget to check out our blog, even though I hardly ever post anything on there, which is terrible of me, at mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com. Check us out on Facebook. That seems to be where, where we do most of our contact with listeners, and I appreciate those of you who have reached out to us on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast. Uh, don't forget to check out ITL Coaching, uh, ITL Coaching and Performance, the sponsor of this podcast who are bringing you uh, all the uh, the information here. Uh, ITLCoaching.com. Check them out on Twitter, at ITL Coaching, uh, and on Facebook, Facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. Also, don't forget about my wife, the Travel Planner. Uh, Facebook.com slash Casey Travel Planner MEV, um, or you can drop her a, a, a message at Casey, K A C I E, at UGA.edu. Uh, if you want to reach out to us on the, uh, the, the, the Facebook page or on Twitter uh, for the podcast, we can, of course, point you to any of the links for our sponsors there. Thanks again for listening. Please go on iTunes and give us some ratings and some love, and we will see you next time.